Although the next UK general election may be more than a year away, the main players in the race to 10 Downing Street are already beginning to outline positions on key issues, a process that is intensifying as the party conference season takes place. First up this week, the Conservative Party held their conference at the Manchester Central Convention. The Conservative Party has been in government since 2010, but this was seen as an opportunity for the Tories to present themselves as the agent of change. Rishi Sunak has been labelled by some in opposition parties as the inaction man. The Prime Minister will be hoping to reverse that opinion as he sold himself on a conference reset. A recent exclusive poll conducted by The National found that the UK general public thought Labour leader Keir Starmer would do a better job on the world stage than Mr Sunak. The Delta Poll survey of 2039 British adults asked respondents to choose between whether Mr Starmer and Mr Sunak would do a better job of representing the UK on the world stage. It's fair to say the Conservative Party conference has come at a pivotal time for the Tories and all eyes are watching closely. The main question around Mr Sunak is has he left it too late? Can he turn his party's fortunes around? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Damien McElroy, London Bureau Chief at The National. And this week we are at that conference in Manchester. On this podcast, we'll dissect the burning questions that arise from the meetings of the two main parties discuss whether Mr Sunak is indeed able to change his party fortunes and examine how the Conservatives are facing the issues of the world and also chat about what policies are anticipated for the Middle East. But before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. With the conference slogan, Long-Term Decisions for a Brighter Future, Rishi Sunak outlined his long-term vision as Prime Minister after arriving last year in number 10 at a moment of crisis. Among the key talking points from the conference so far have been HS2, the high-speed rail line that connects London and Manchester, the decision to scrap the Birmingham to Manchester leg of it. Also, Mr Sunak has announced he is raising the age of smoking every year by a year until it's eventually eliminated, and the removal of A-levels. To help decipher these highlights, I was joined at the conference in Manchester by Charlotte Leslie, Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and Thomas Harding, our Policy and Security Editor at The National here in the UK. Uh, the easiest thing for me to do is open up the discussion right away. Um, Thomas, you've been at some events with cabinet ministers. What do you think is the message they are trying to push out at the moment? Uh, Well, interestingly, I've been in the room twice now where a cabinet minister has said to the audience that, and of course, they're going to win the next election uh, next year and been met by one person clapping and silence by the other room. So uh, they're seems to be a sort of slight acceptance that it might not happen next year for the Conservatives. Everyone's trying to do their best. I watched Jeremy Hunt last night give a speech at uh, the Policy Exchange suggesting that uh, they would win and they would win because the economy is going to be strong and they're going to turn it around and they're going to get inflation down and that will help people um, get on board the Conservative Party. But remains to see they've got a lot of work to do in the next year. 
And one of the things that has been talked about a lot, I think, is how the government is trying to win the trust of certain voters. So there's been a lot of talk about motorists being a category of voter, whereas perhaps if you're a young person renting a property, you're not really a government priority. Is that the kind of dynamics you're seeing here? Yeah, I think we've seen a real, um, you know, the screeching U-turn with a lot of rubber left on the tarmac when uh, Rishi Sunak uh, reduced the net zero targets by five years or or delayed them by five years uh, last week was the start of this campaign to get motorists on board. If you remember the 1992 election, Mondeo Mann was the person who won it for John Major against all expectations against Neil Kinnock. And they are now looking at uh, doing away as best they can with the 20 mile an hour limit uh, in certain uh, towns. Uh, they've referenced the 15 minute drive rule for, for cities that will again help motorists um, and you know, the net zero uh, decision does help the man in the car so or woman um, and they are very much looking like they're, they're going to go for easy some some easy wins with with the british motorists and charlotte you obviously know very well the ups and downs of politics and the party and how the mood of the room matters in terms of how it eventually faces up to what could be uh, quite and difficult election for it in 2024. How do you think people are talking about that among themselves at the moment? Well, I think it's apparent that any party that's been in power for 13 years is is going to find it very difficult. Every government, every party has a natural lifespan and being in government takes a lot of energy. And it's always difficult when you reach that point. At the same time, you've had a lot of external shocks as well. So the party has got an enormous challenge. I think there's a real dynamic of to what extent do we adopt new policies, change policies to meet what our polling is saying? And to what extent do we just go steady? I won't say strong and stable, but just steady as we go, maintain our direction, no sudden moves so that people look at the government and say they know what they're doing. And I think that's a very difficult balance. So you got the the screeching U-turn, as as Thomas called it, on the net zero. That will appeal to some voters. As a former constituency MP, I can imagine the mailbox. There'll be lots of people who are very happy with that. But of course, and they will have done this, balanced against a lack of continuity and people saying, well, is this a government that's just telling me what I want to hear? Now, I think there has been some way to go in convincing the motorist, the person who needs the car to get to work, the rural communities, of the reasons behind net zero. And some of the measures that have been taken previously haven't reached down for the, you know, for the reasons why those measures are taken to your average voter. So I think it's very interesting that this has been chosen. I think it very much is a, a Mondeo man moment. But, you know, back in Mondeo days, we weren't talking, is it petrol or is it electric? And that's a completely new dynamic that's come in. Yes, and one of the aspects, of course, of that announcement in particular and the politics that Rishi Sunak is trying to put around that is um, the upcoming COP28 in Dubai at the end of November. And if you rewind to, um, you know, the COP26 that was in Glasgow two, three years ago here, Britain very much wanted to be out there in front as a leader of this whole process. Um, how do you think that squares in terms of the international look of 
what the government has been doing. You know, how how are they going to go forward from that decision into COP28 and make uh, make a offer to the world as well as to their voters? There are, there are two parts here, aren't there? The global audience and the domestic audience. And I think one thing the government has done quite well is to say to the domestic audience that we're not rowing back on our commitment to tackling climate change. We're just saying that the, you know, the current net zero measures, and net zero has become such an all-encompassing phrase, aren't necessarily the best way to do it if you're managing you know, short-term pain and the long-term gain and how efficient the short-term pain will be for that actual long-term gain. And I think that message has sunk in. It'll be interesting to see how much it sinks into the the Lib Dem, the, you know, the South, the Southwest and Southeast, more Lib Dem, new Labour-ish leaning voters who are very concerned about the environment. Um, I think there is some work to do on the global stage to say we are moving with the rest of the world, with the Middle East, with even even China, which talks about net zero and climate change, to, the ex- to what extent actually anything happens, of course, is a different conversation. But the zeitgeist is environment and net zero. And there probably is some work to do for the government to demonstrate that it is not falling behind the curve. But the government will say, none of this means anything if we don't win the election next year. So let's win the election next year. We know our electorate. And we haven't disposed of the commitment to climate change. We just think we're going to do it in different ways. And obviously, you have been focused in your particular area with, you've had a few Middle East events here. How do you think um, those issues that you've been trying to explore, which maybe you talk a little bit about them, but um, how do you think they resonate here and how much bandwidth is there for those types of topics and, and the sorts of messages that you're getting out? Well, look, when you when you run a group that's focused on the Middle East and you come to a party conference just before an election and having been an MP, I, I know that, you know, when I was an MP, I was looking at my different categories of voters and how they're going to vote. You are always worried whether there's going to be cut through. But what's been really interesting is I think both members of the public, uh, members of the Conservative Party who are here and others really feel the global shocks and it has become a lot easier to persuade people who may normally only be domestically interested that there is no such thing, no man is an island, that domestic is connected to the world. And so we had a discussion about um, Britain's place um, and the West's place in the Middle East, North Africa, the rise of BRICS nations, we call it who's bricking it, um, and that was very well attended because I think people do think about the role of China. They do look at the war in Ukraine and say, what does this mean for us? They do say, how isolated or how supported is the West in defending our democratic liberal values? Um, we had a discussion on Syria, and again, I was an MP during the time that the, the, the Syrian war, civil war erupted and took place. And I had previously found it difficult to talk to constituents about why I thought it was necessary as an MP to go to the Middle East. After Syrian refugees became an issue with that terrible photograph of a little toddler washed up on a Turkish beach and also the migrant issue into Europe became an issue, that argument became a lot easier to make. We do live in a world that does feel much more connected. And going back to your original question about the government, of course, the government is feeling that as well. Those external shocks that a domestic government can't do very much about is rocking our economy, is rocking um, what we're able to do domestically. So actually, in some ways, it's made my job of bringing the Middle East to the Conservative Party conference in some ways easier.
And Thomas, you were with cabinet ministers this morning who was exploring some of those issues and was acknowledging, you know, the impact of loss of influence in the Middle East, but also saying they were now working hard to outreach to various countries and try and put things back together. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yes. Andrew Mitchell, the Foreign Office Minister for Development in Africa, admitted that uh, Britain's soft power and influence in the Middle East had, quotes, dipped um, in recent years, but that Rishi Sunak was working hard to try and restore it, having meetings with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is hopefully coming here later this month to the UK. Um, Qatar and the UAE are all sort of trying to, to gear up and, and restore our lost influence, which I think Charlotte, Charlotte has also spoken about to us. Um, and to Britain to use its soft power that it's meant to be very good at doing, um, and its development budget, international development budget to try and um, get some leverage in, in, in the region, especially in the post-Brexit world and the post-US world of not being such a presence there, that there's, there is a, a void that needs to be filled. And just looking ahead, we know next week will be the Labour Party conference, um, also in a, another northern city, not too far away from here. And um, I just wonder where you think this leaves us in terms of what sort of a job I've done as Labour are about to meet. What sort of job the Conservatives have done? Um, it's been a steady but slightly uninspiring conference so far. Um, there's been a few hand grenades that have half gone off with the human hand grenade of Liz Truss trying to cause a bit of a eruption um, by turning up yesterday and um, making her bid for uh, low taxes and growth. Um, but there seems to be a lot of positioning of who might be the next leader if Rishi Sunak loses the election um, and a lot of women have come to the fore in that so there is a strong chance that there could be a fourth female leader of the Conservative Party um, this time next year or a bit later but uh, it's, it's, it's not fallen apart for them uh, it's, it, they've held it together people largely cabinet have stayed on message which is a huge change to last year when this truss was detonating indeed we can always say thank god it's not last year right well thank you guys good to talk to you to understand more what's expected from the Labour Party conference that is set to begin over the weekend and what's ahead in UK politics. Thomas is back with me. We've just been at the Conservative conference. We had uh, the opportunity to listen to Rishi Sunak as he made his case and really fired the opening gun for the um, election that uh, must be called next year. And um, he was very much trying to portray himself as a change candidate and define um, Keir Starmer as someone who didn't really stand for anything. I wonder, first of all, Thomas, if you thought that the um, the Starmer doesn't stand for anything, I am the youthful voice of change, really can work as a platform for Mr. Sunak. Uh, it can work up to a point. Um, 
it, it is not is a useful strategy to pursue using his youth and uh, his relative energy and his intelligence to sort of portray himself as something different. I, I think what also happened yesterday was that in his announcements of ban uh, axing HS2, banning cigarette smoking and uh, sort of cancelling A-levels is that he really potentially has given Labour a bitter pill to swallow now, uh, i.e. how they respond to those three things, because Starmer's going to be asked about it today, tomorrow and the next week. Is, is he going to keep those Tory policies or is he going to do something different, which will be a bit of a challenge for him. And then if he does keep them, it's a bitter pill to for Labour if it does gain power, as is most likely uh, this time next year, for them to, to implement those policies. So... Um, it, it, you know, he, he is trying to his hardest to make himself look like a change candidate, but um, it, it's also he's he's made it slightly hard for Labour as well because next week they're going to have to address these issues and they are very cautious on spending Labour and they do not want to commit to any spending that that's uh, over and above what the Tories have already sort of um, put in their budget. And is it a valid thing to say? Keir Starmer is 17, I think, years older than him. Um, you know, there is there is a idea that Labour aren't really talking about things that maybe Mr. Sunak is talking about. For example, he will hold uh, an AI summit in November in um, the UK, and uh, he wants to really say that he um, can ad address the sort of future oncoming issues, whereas uh, leaving aside the long experience of Mr. Starmer and his uh, distinguished career as, as a prosecutor, etc. There's um, a sense that this is not really something that gives Starmer an agenda, whereas uh, Sunak has an agenda. Yeah, it is. It is difficult for Labour. I mean, you know, they are 15, 20 points ahead in the polls. Um, and as one person described it to me is, is that it is like them carrying a Ming Dynasty vase. They know that they've got this big trophy that they can get over the line, but if they drop it, it will break into a thousand shards and you know, they could um, lose a significant number of votes. So, um, you know, Richard Sunak's making it difficult for them. They're fighting as hard as he can to stay in power. Um, and you know, it's almost as if Labour the ones in government, the Tories the ones are in opposition at the moment, um, which has been said before. But it, you know, it, it seems very much the case they're kind of trying to come up with these innovative ideas to undermine Labour's sort of um, very steady, uh, cautious approach to the election, sort of actual election start line. And looking ahead to Liverpool, we're changing from one part of the northwest. The great big city of Manchester to the coastal um, legendary city of Liverpool and um, obviously the tribes that is Labour will be convening there. Uh, I think one takeaway from Manchester was that the campaign from a Conservative point of view will be really revolving around Sunak, his personality, his family values, his kind of what made him uh, and I wondered, do you think we'll actually see the same from Starmer, that Starmer has to also keep on emphasising the personal and really give people something to hold on to from, from a Liverpool stage? Yeah, I mean, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool Labour have a 
they do have a slight issue on multiculturalism and on women um even though the 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 the, the, the shadow chance exchequer and the deputy leader are both women that they're, they're, they're a bit thin on the ground whereas the tories have a lot of multi uh ethnic people and uh, ethnic minority people in their in their in their front bench as well as women so that is it is is a difficult one he's he's a sort of white male sort of slightly private school educated um barrister and rishi sunak is not and he, I, I think rishi sunak's quite clever at you know playing on his sort of british asian roots he doesn't overdo it but he does highlight it in a very sort of forthright way that 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 isn't in your face and as he said yesterday in his speech it's it's not really something that we uh, we really need is an issue you know it's just it's just there it's, it's not a big deal um which i think is the right way to play it uh, you know whether that wins him more votes or not after 13 years of the conservative in power it's a different question i think one of the other interesting things sort of throwing it forward from manchester to liverpool is that the sense in the conservative conference was that almost all the journalists from there will decamp and go to, to to liverpool but also a lot of the businesses that were in manchester with the conservatives they will go to liverpool too because they can see which direction the wind is blowing and they want to be on the right side of the next government in power so that's something that's very much happening in the in, in the city as well at the moment so I, I thought that was quite an interesting indication of, of how next week might go in, in a sort of fairly positive way for labor that they have a lot of business backing but that restricts their policies obviously as well yeah and one of the people who was at one of the stalls in the conference said to me that you know where's the big massive google stand that was here last year it's just not here this year and it was very evident that there was a much smaller uh footprint by business and by uh, those uh, commercial lobbyists, etc., than mm. that would have been other years. Yeah, no, that that was that was evident. Um, you know, you had a bit of Sainsbury's and a, a, a few sort of electric bikes and a few other bits and pieces, but it wasn't it wasn't really, really a buzz around the stands. That and it would be interesting to see if if that's the case in 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 Liverpool, whether you know, businesses really put 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 a lot more effort into it there. I mean, you know, it could could. That could, you know, it could be even a bigger event for businesses in Liverpool than it was in Manchester, which would certainly tell you a, a thing or two. And uh, just, I suppose, a final question looking ahead. Um, Labour will also want to project a certain image to the world. Um, we've already seen in the last few weeks, for example, that um, Keir Starmer went to the Elysee Palace. He met Macron. Um, he really does want to seem to use his strong position in the UK polls to say that the country he would lead would be a lot more kind of um, friendly to the world than than uh, the Conservative-led one at the moment. But obviously that also is a balancing act for him because then he has to do the the, the uh, trade-off with, you know, uh, getting attacked on possible weakness on migration and, and all those things. So that, that'll be another running theme of, of the days ahead. Yeah, I think it's very interesting the the international positioning that, that Labour can potentially capitalise on if they come into power. I mean, the Conservatives have very much taken their eye off a, a lot of international issues, global issues, and the sort of chaos that Brexit caused and the disruption. Um, you know, in the Middle East in particular, we heard a lot in the conference that that, that Britain is 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 fairly absent there. So I think a, a more internationalist 
starts out, I think you remember when Tony Blair came to power in 97, it was this sort of this this wave of, you know, quite pro-British, but British influence as well across Europe and, and, and beyond. Um, that, cool Britannia. Yeah, cool Britannia, yeah. Um, that that yeah, but potentially Starmer can can use to, to good effect, you know, and but I, I think you know, the Western liberal democracies and, and others will will welcome that of after a period of chaos in the in British politics, which you know didn't show Western liberal democracy to be particularly stable or strong, um, that that they might get somebody who's sort of reliable and can can provide the punch that many countries look to from Britain. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. It was an interesting week and there will be another one ahead. Um, that's an excellent summary. Thank you. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much. Thanks this week to Charlotte Leslie and Thomas Harding. We were produced this week by Phil Green and Doa Farid, and I'm your host, Damien McElroy. If you want to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they are released, then just subscribe in your podcast app.